0: All right, how are we doing today, everybody? Great, man, good to see you. Game day today. How about that? Anyone excited about that? That guy is. Good. No, but it's great to see you and uh, super excited to be together, uh, not just for the Browns opener, but also because uh, this week we're actually opening up a brand new series that we're gonna be in for the next eight weeks together that we're calling Highlight God Through You. And so really excited about a chance to uh, be able to start this new series. I personally I'm really excited about journeying for the next eight weeks through this series together. I just want to kind of reiterate something Steve mentioned a moment ago, and that is if you are a guest with us here today at the Medina East Campus, if it's your first time here, then we're so glad you're here. Thanks so much for being our guest. And we just want to recognize that walking into a church for the first time where you don't know anybody or where you're you're not familiar with anything, that it takes a lot of courage. And so I just want to say thank you. Just want to acknowledge that and say thank you so much for coming. If you are a guest... And I do just want to mention that I believe you came on a great weekend. And uh, the reason for that is, you know, we oftentimes say that the beginning of a new series is one of the greatest opportunities to get connected to Grace Church. And the reason for that is because at Grace, we actually kind of work through things one sermon series at a time. And the way that we view sermon series are kind of like one big conversation that we have over the course of several weeks. So the fact that you're here on week one, it's like you're kind of catching us at the beginning of the conversation. And so I would actually encourage you, uh, if you are new, maybe consider locking in for the next eight weeks and kind of hearing the whole conversation front to end. I think that would give you a chance to hopefully get to know us, hear the whole series, and also would hopefully give us a chance to get to know you, which we would love to do that. And uh, and so kind of working through this series together. So um, this series, Highlight God Through You, basically what we're going to find is that this entire series is going to be based out of, and it's going to be journeying through the New Testament book of the Bible, 1 Peter. And so this whole series is going to be kind of working through this incredible book that's in the New Testament of the Bible. It's actually probably a little more accurate to call it a letter. It's actually kind of a first century letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet we have it now in our Bibles today in the New Testament. So we're going to be working our way kind of through um, this whole book. And so as we sort of introduce this series and introduce this book, um, I actually just want to invite you, if you would, let's just go ahead and jump right in, and why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Peter with me. So go ahead and grab your Bible. And uh, if you would open that up or use your Bible app on your phone and go ahead and get to 1 Peter chapter one is where we're gonna start the series off. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you here today, you can feel free to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs, those black Bibles, page 850 is where you're gonna find 1 Peter. And also, if you don't own a Bible, man, just feel free to take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible for yourself. So 1 Peter chapter one is where we're gonna look and begin our series together. Now, uh, my goal of today's talk, just to sort of let you know what I'm hoping to do. My hope is to introduce you to the series, so this is a little bit of an introduction week, and my hope is to introduce you to the book of First Peter. But my hope is, and my goal is that by the end of today's talk that you will see two things about this book and about this series. And the first one is this: My hope is that you're going to discover that 1 Peter is deeply relevant to the situation and historical spot that we find ourselves in right now. The cultural, historical place that we find ourselves in today, I believe 1 Peter is deeply relevant. And even though this is a letter that was written, like I said, almost 2000 years ago, and even though we are removed by time and culture I think what you're going to see is there are an amazing amount of parallels between the circumstance of this letter and the circumstance that we are increasingly finding ourselves in today. So my hope is that you're going to make that connection. And then my second goal is that you're going to see that 1 Peter is incredibly practical, that while Peter is going to introduce us to some pretty big ideas, there's some huge concepts, there are some high theological truths that are in the book of 1 Peter, but Peter does an amazing job of taking these big ideas and bringing them all the way down to earth. And so he takes it down into the nitty gritty practicality of life. And so he's gonna talk about in the book of 1 Peter, he's gonna talk about how these big, huge theological concepts are gonna work their way all the way down into your relationships, into your friendships, into your marriages, into your work relationships with your coworkers and with your boss, into the way that you interact with your government and the way that you interact in the times of suffering and hardship in your life. He's gonna work it all the way down, all the way down to earth. And so I want you to see this book is really, really relevant to us. I think it's very timely. And it's incredibly practical, especially for those who follow Jesus. And I know of course not everyone here today follows Jesus, but Peter's gonna talk really a lot to followers of Christ of how, how it looks to live out our faith in the world uh, that we live in. So as we, uh, as we jump in and sort of introduce this series, I think the best place for us to start is just in verse one. So let's just read this together, and we're gonna read verse one. And I'm just gonna go ahead and let you know, in, in case you're wondering, I don't think we're gonna get any further than verse one in today's talk. And that's okay, because it's an introduction. But verse one is loaded, and I think it tells us a whole lot about the, the book of 1 Peter. So let's just jump in. Here we go, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse one. Here's how it starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right, let's go ahead and hit pause there. There's verse one. And uh, this verse, as quick as it is, is, you know, if you look at it, I think you'll see it is loaded with a lot of information. I believe that in this one verse, you see not only who wrote this letter, but who it was written to, where it was written to, and why it was written I think you see all of that in this one verse. And so let's just kind of break it apart. You'll notice that the first word, the very first word in the book of 1 Peter is the name Peter. So Peter starts his book off with his name Peter. And what is he doing here? He is identifying who is the author, who is the one who is responsible for sending and writing this letter, And it is Peter, he self-identifies. Now, if you didn't grow up in the church or maybe you're not super familiar with the Bible, Peter is a pretty notable character, a pretty famous guy. Uh, he would have been a disciple of Jesus. He actually considers himself here an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I actually wanna take just a few minutes today and I wanna talk just a little bit about who this guy is, about who Peter is. My hope is to give you a little bit of a character sketch. And here's why. Because I believe that when you can know a little bit about Peter, and you can know a little bit about his story and his transformation, that it actually is going to bring this book to life in a way that maybe it never has been brought to life if you've ever read it before, all right? So I think that understanding who he is, is going to add a lot of color to when we read uh, the book of First Peter. So let me give you some background. If you don't know anything about Peter, if you're kind of newer to the church, who is Peter? All right, well, here's a picture of him. This is actually his uh, high school senior picture. And... Um, <laughs> Now, we actually don't know, we don't know what he looked like at all, but just a few things about him. One thing we know is that uh, his name is Peter, but he actually goes by several different names, and so this can actually be really confusing if you're new to the Bible, is that when you're reading it, you'll see that Peter is sometimes called Peter, and sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Simon Peter, or sometimes he's called Cephas. And that can be really confusing, but let me kind of help you understand that. Most likely, his birth name was probably Simon. And so when Jesus first meets him, uh, Simon would have been a teenager and Jesus invites him to follow him and be his disciple. And one of the first things Jesus does is he changes his name from Simon to Peter. And Peter, by the way, is a Greek name and it's Petros, and it literally means rock. So Jesus basically names him the rock. And the name Cephas is the Aramaic version of the rock. Okay, so just so you understand, Peter is, he's, he's, he's the rock. This is why uh, some people call 1 Peter and 2 Peter, those two letters, uh, Rocky 1 and Rocky 2, because he is the original Rocky. So Rocky Balboa or uh, Dwayne Johnson, the rock, these guys are both imposters because according to Jesus Christ, Peter was the original rock. He was the first one who kind of played that role. So a little bit to know about him. Actual photo of Peter, by the way, right, so... Just a little bit about him. Another thing we know about Peter is that he actually was Jesus's lead disciple. So it's fascinating that the Bible's going to tell us that not only was Peter a disciple, but there is a particular focus and emphasis that is placed on this guy. So whenever you read lists of the twelve disciples, you're going to see Peter's always number one on the list. He's always listed as first. Uh, Peter is the one uh, in Matthew 16. He's the first one to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is the one that Jesus looks at and says, your name is Peter, and on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. In fact, if you are a Roman Catholic person or you grew up that way, you might know this, that in that tradition, Peter is not simply the first among disciples. He's actually considered the first pope. And so the whole papacy comes from this, uh, an understanding of who Peter is. So there is a a strong focus on this guy, on Peter throughout scripture. Uh, Something else we know about Peter is that he was a Galilean fisherman. And so when he first meets Jesus, he was part of a fishing community. Uh, Most likely commentators believe that his family would have maybe owned a fishing business. His father was a fisherman. His brother Andrew was also a fisherman. And so Peter was a fisherman when he met Jesus. I thought this was kind of interesting. I actually didn't know this about Peter, but I think it's interesting, is that he actually had this really thick accent, this strong North country accent that quickly identified him as a Galilean. And so I thought this is sort of interesting. So if you and I lived back in the first century and we knew Peter and we talked to him, you'd be able to tell where he was from right away because of his accent. And what's fascinating about this is that Galileans had a certain stereotype that went along with kind of with kind of them. And so I thought this was kind of fun to show you. This is actually this comes from New Unger's Bible Dictionary. But according to uh, to that dictionary, this is what the stereotypical Galilean was known for. All right. So first off they were known for being generous and impulsive. And so Galileans were the kind of people who would give you the shirt off their back one minute and would potentially fight you the next minute if you, you know, looked at their girlfriend wrong or something like that. So they were, they were generous and yet they were kind of impulsive people. Uh, they, were, they were known to be people of simple manners. And so, um, you know, Galilee wasn't, wasn't the epicenter of arts and culture. Uh, Galilee wouldn't have been where the leading philosophers would have come from. It was basically blue collar workers who sort of came out of a place like Galilee. Uh, Galileans were intensely nationalistic. You're talking about a very patriotic group of people who were proud of where they were from. And so this is the kind of people who, you know, modern day equivalent would kind of fire off their own fireworks in their backyard on the 4th of July, probably the kind of people that would only drive American cars and drink American beer. And that's sort of what, what they were like. That's sort, sort of who, who they were. Uh, they were excitable, passionate, and oftentimes violent. And so you get the impression that the Galileans were the rowdy crowd. And, uh, and so they were the excitable, passionate, and sometimes would break out into a brawl kind of people and then the other thing that was interesting is they were notorious for neglecting the study of their language and so they they were known for not speaking very well and so because of that a lot of times the neighboring communities viewed the galileans as uneducated people and it was interesting i was reading this and i couldn't help but think to myself you know what is a modern day equivalent of this for us when you think about a group of people who are marked by their accent And it's easy to identify that they are generous and impulsive of simple manners, intensely nationalistic and patriotic, excitable, passionate, and violent, notorious for neglecting. Who comes to your mind? I'm just curious. Turn to your neighbor. Who comes to your mind when you think of this? You know what I think of? I think of a redneck. That's what I think of. This is the modern day equivalent of a redneck. This is like people from Doylestown, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you are from Doylestown. You know what I'm talking about, right? I think of a guy like this. That's what I think of, you know? <laughs> this guy comes to my mind. I'm like, that's what I sort of think of when I think of guys like Peter. But no, I mean, out of, you know, all seriousness, i tell you what I love so much about Peter. What I love is that you see that God uses such different personalities to bring glory and honor to himself. You know, if you even think about two of the most prominent church leaders uh, in the first century uh, who were used mightily by God, Paul and Peter, they could not be more vastly different. You know, Paul, deeply educated, high philosophy, you know, church kid. Peter, on the other hand, is kind of a Galilean guy, very relatable. And I love that because you see the diversity of how God is working uh, in his lives. I can relate to a guy like Peter, you know? Uh, something about Peter I, I love too. Uh, I think kind of keeping with his Galilean sort of stereotype. When he was following Jesus on earth, Peter was notorious for his over-eagerness to speak and act but also for his failures and inabilities to follow through. So I think this is pretty interesting. You know, when you read about Peter in the New Testament, you see that he is this character who is notorious for speaking first, but also for putting his foot in his mouth pretty quickly after. And there's a lot of times in uh, Peter's career of following Jesus that you see that he is impulsive and he is eager, but then he often folds under pressure. And so a good example of this, uh, one that comes to my mind is like in Matthew 14, when uh, Jesus was walking on water. Some of you guys might remember this. This is an actual photo of the event right here. Uh, But Jesus was walking on water. Peter was the first one to speak up. He said, Jesus, can I come and join you? And Jesus was like, yeah, come on out here. And even though he was quick to speak, he also was quick to sink. And he uh, saw the wind and the waves and the pressure of the moment got to him and he began to falter in his faith. And Jesus, you know, looked at him and said, you have a little faith, you know? And so that's kind of a picture of, of what he was like. Another example that comes to my mind is uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. And you might remember this scene, if you're familiar with the Bible, where Jesus, the night before he was crucified, you know, he's got his disciples and he says, you guys, tomorrow I'm going to the cross, I'm gonna be arrested, and, and uh, you guys are all gonna abandon me. And Peter's like, no way, Jesus, I'll never abandon you. I, you know, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, Peter, three times before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're gonna deny me. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened with with that scenario. And then uh, Peter's also the guy who's known for lobbing off the ear of the guard who tried to arrest Jesus. You remember this scene? So they came to arrest Jesus in the garden and Peter grabbed his sword and just hacked off the ear of this guy, Malchus. And the Bible says that uh, Jesus had to heal the dude's ear and then rebuke Peter. He's like, Peter, that's, I told you, that's not how we do things. And um, you get that impression with him. But I'll tell you what I love so much about him, because I, I can totally relate to this guy. What I love so much about him is that when the Holy Spirit enters into his life, there is a notable transformation that happens. And so after Jesus raises from the dead and the resurrected power of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit enters into his life, you see a very different Peter. Uh, Peter goes from being the guy who's most likely to put his foot in his mouth to being one of the most prolific and profound preachers. Uh, He preaches the first sermon in Acts 2 to the church and 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. Peter goes from being a guy who buckles under pressure to being a man who ultimately will give his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, we actually know that's how he died. Uh, Peter's death is he died as a martyr in Rome And so we know that uh, from the Bible and also from history. And actually it was probably not too long after he wrote the book of first and second Peter that he would have been killed uh, for his faith. We also know that uh, his martyrdom was probably under the persecution of a guy named Emperor Nero. We'll talk about that more in the series, but it was one of the darkest and most severe times of persecution that Christianity has ever seen in history. And he was actually killed that way. What's fascinating is history actually tells us that most likely Peter would have been crucified upside down. That's how he was martyred. And so Origen, who's a first century historian and theologian, he wrote this, he said, Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he himself had desired to suffer. And so basically tradition tells us that, they were, uh, that Peter uh, denied, uh, was, was unwilling to renounce his faith. And as a result of that, that they were gonna crucify him as a way of mocking the death of Jesus. And Peter said, uh, allegedly, I am not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord. And he demanded that they crucify him upside down. And they did, pretty awesome stuff. And it's interesting, when you see an upside down cross today, we tend to equate that with someone who's anti-God or you know anti-Christ. But interestingly, throughout church history, an upside down cross was the mark of Peter. And so next time you see someone with an upside-down cross tattooed on their arm or something, just go up and say, I didn't know you were so into Peter. And then uh, see how that goes for you. I'll be (laughs) happy to visit you in the hospital if you do that, right? So so Peter, Peter's the one who writes the letter. So that's a little bit of a background of who he is. But you'll also notice here in the first verse that it also tells us who it was written to and where it was written to. And so he says here, it was written to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of notice Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now I know those places probably don't mean anything to you, um, but I won't get too into it, too into the geography. But I think it's important that you know this because we'll see this through the series, that Peter is gonna be writing this letter from Rome. And so Peter is in Italy when he's writing this and the region that he's writing to is what is modern day turkey so all of these places aren't it's not just he's not just writing to one person he's not just writing to one church he's writing to an entire region and essentially what peter is doing what you're going to discover is he's actually writing to all christians everywhere this is a letter that would have been widely circulated and widely distributed to the churches in the ancient world and he is writing to every kind of christian to Jewish Christians, to non-Jewish Christians, to Gentile Christians, he's writing to all of them. And what's interesting to me, if you notice, and you look very carefully carefully here in verse one, is it actually tells us not just who this is written to, but I think it gives us some insight into what the circumstance was that he was writing into. So, So notice this, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles who are scattered, throughout the provinces of Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now this is one of those statements right here that like much of the Bible, it is so easy to read this and read right past it and not think twice about what he just said. But what I want you to see is that what Peter says right here, the fact that he calls Christians, God's elect, exiles that are scattered is actually really, really, really significant. I mean, it seems like a weird thing to say, doesn't it? Gods, elect, exiles, scattered. But what I want you to notice is that when he says this, he's actually doing a couple of things. First off, what he's doing is he's introducing a major theme that is gonna show up all throughout the book of 1 Peter. And so when he says God's elect, all throughout the book of 1 Peter, he's gonna call Christians God's elect, God's chosen people, a chosen nation, a holy people. He's gonna use terms like this all throughout the book of 1 Peter. That's a weird way to refer to Christians. And another thing he's gonna say all throughout the book of 1 Peter is he's gonna refer to Christians as exiles, exiles who are scattered or exiles who are dispersed. That's a really weird thing to say too. So throughout 1 Peter, he's gonna call Christians aliens and strangers in a foreign land. He's gonna call them exiles. He's gonna call them foreigners. Now, what's all that? About? That's a weird way to refer to Christians. Well, here's what I want you to understand, that when Peter says this, he's actually drawing back from a very specific situation that happened in Old Testament history. And he's using that as a metaphor to talk to Christians in the setting that they're in during that time. And what is he referring to? Well, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, what Peter's referring to when he says, God's elect exiles who are scattered. He is referring to something in the Israelite history that's called the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile. Have you ever heard of that before? It's actually recorded in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Daniel. It's in the book of Jeremiah. It talks about that situation in the Israelite history. But what was happening in that time is that God's chosen people, the Israelites, God's elect nation, these are Old Testament words, found themselves in a situation where they were defeated by the Babylonians, a neighboring kingdom. And rather than destroying the Israelites and annihilating them, what the Babylonians did is they exiled the Israelites. And what that means is that they took the Israelites out of their country and they dispersed them throughout the Babylonian kingdom. And now for the first time, Christians had to figure out what does it look like to live out our spiritual identity as God's people in a land that is foreign to and hostile towards our faith. And so they had to live like exiles. Now, this is really meaningful. And the reason is because Peter's gonna take that scenario and he's gonna pick it up and he is going to apply it to Christians. He's gonna say Christ followers now are living in a time of exile, living in a time and place where they're trying to live out their faith, in a a culture and in a society that is largely misunderstanding of and hostile towards the things of Jesus Christ. And so when Peter's saying this, he's actually referring to the circumstance that the Christians are in. He's trying to help them process through how do you interact with the world that you live in. In fact, we actually know, we actually know a little bit of what was going on back in this time. This letter, uh, historians believe, was written in about 64 AD. And here's what was going on in 64 AD. I'll just give you a snapshot just in bullet points. Number one, back in this time, Christians were following Jesus in a society in which they were the cultural minority. So this was the landscape. In this time, it was not a Christian nation. People didn't look favorably upon Christ followers. It was in a society where Christians were the minority. They were a small sect of society during this time. Secondly, Christians had to learn how to navigate their faith in a society that was largely hostile towards and misunderstanding of the message of Christ. And so this was a society, again, that oftentimes the Christian message and Christian teaching was met with apprehension and sometimes hostility and a lot of times with misunderstanding. And then thirdly, there was a rising social pressure for Christians to abandon Christ and abandon his teachings. And so there was societal pressures, there was peer pressures, there was governmental pressures that were put on the Christians that it would be easier for them to abandon their faith in Christ than it would be to continue to follow Christ in the society they lived in. Now, my guess is that when I put these bullet points on the screen, you're probably starting to recognize why the book of 1 Peter is so relevant to us today. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We increasingly live in a society today where we are becoming more and more secularized meaning that maybe at one point in history, our nation and our time and our culture was considered a Christian nation, but increasingly it's becoming so that Christians are more and more the minority, that uh, the message of Christianity is oftentimes not met with, with, uh, with a warm embrace. A lot of times it's met with hostility and misunderstanding and, and some of those things as well. And so I think you can start to see that this, this, this book, the book of First Peter, is becoming increasingly more relevant to us today. I think it's uh, kind of interesting we actually sort of know what some of the, the stereotypes were of Christians in the first century. And it's fascinating when you look at some of the stereotypes, some of the negative kind of stereotypes and misunderstandings about Christians in the first century. There was a, um, a document that was discovered in the second century. And it was a, it's a document that is called the Octavius of Minutius Felix. You don't need to remember that, but you can actually get it on Amazon and it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read because what this book does, what this document is, is it actually records a debate, a first century debate between a Christian by the name of Octavius and a non-Christian by the, guy named, by, uh, by the name of Sicilius. And so in this debate between these two men, Sicilius is basically accusing Octavius of certain stereotypes that Christians would have had. And so some of those, just to give you a picture, in the landscape would have been first off this. Um, Christians in that time, one of the big accusations was they were atheists. That might sound weird to you and I, uh, but back in this time, Christians were oftentimes misunderstood and sometimes hated because they were viewed as atheists. And so basically in this book, what Sicilius says to his friend, Octavius, is he says, you Christians are a bunch of atheists. They lived in a polytheistic culture where people believed in many gods. Many of them would have worshiped the emperor as God, And yet here he looks and he says, you Christians, you worship one God and you refuse to worship the emperor. He says, you guys are anti-progress. You are, you are, you are, um, anarchists because you're fighting against the system and you are disrupting all society. And so basically that was one of the negative stereotypes that Christians had back in this day. Another thing Christians were accused of was incest, incest. And so this, um, This actually arose, when you read this document, you see that it arose from the fact that Christians would oftentimes refer to each other as brothers and sisters. And so Christians would be brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ would get married. And people were like, that's freaky weird stuff. And so uh, because of that, the rumors began to arise that Christians were people who engaged in incestuous relationships. Uh, Another rumor back then was that Christians were cannibals. When is the last time you've been called a cannibal if you're a follower of Christ, right? But here's the rumor. So I think this is interesting. Cecilia says, you guys have these secret meetings and you come out and there's rumors that you are eating the body and drinking the blood of your savior. And so because of that, they're like, you guys are cannibals, which you're like, well, I guess I could see where he's coming from on that one a little bit. And then he's also gonna say that you guys are unintelligent. And you're self-righteous. You think you're better than everybody else and that kind of stuff. Now, the reason I show you this is because even though we live in an entirely different time, we're 2,000 years detached from this moment right here on the screen, I think it's clear to see that even though the details might change, that there, there continues to be in our society, in some ways, misunderstandings and negative stereotypes that are often associated with Christ followers today. So think about Christians today. Yeah, we might not be called atheists, people might not look at a Christian and call him an atheist, but one thing we hear often is that Christians are intolerant, that in a society where there are many truths, the Christ follower would look and say, no, I believe that there is one truth and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. A statement of exclusivity like that in a relativistic society like ours is very offensive. And so because of that, Christians are oftentimes called intolerant, um, sometimes worse, people might say narrow-minded, or even worse, that they're hateful towards other people who don't hold their same views, so that's one. Um, People probably aren't gonna call Christians, not gonna accuse them of incest, but uh, hypocrite's a big one that we hear a lot, right? That uh, Christians believe one thing, but they live another way. It's probably worth mentioning, by the way, that everything on this list, a lot of these negative stereotypes, Many of them flow from a misunderstanding of Christianity and the message of Christ. But let's be honest, a lot of these are self-inflicted. And I think we just have to own that, that um, there have been some really uh, hurtful and unhelpful things that have been done in the name of Jesus that don't help this, this stereotype that comes along. Uh, bigots, that's one. That's one that some people would say. Um, homophobic. Uh, intolerant of other people's lifestyles, unintelligent, self-righteous, that seems to continue and kind of persist today. And like I said, some of this negative stereotype can come along. In fact, if you're a person in this room who doesn't follow Jesus, maybe you're investigating Christ. This might actually be one of the reasons why you don't follow Jesus. It's, it's because all of your interactions with Christianity and with Christians have only verified this. They haven't done anything to kind of break that apart. What I'm trying to say is that this is increasingly becoming the view more and more of what Christians, who they who they are in, in our society. You can see it in some of the leading voices. So Sam Harris, um, who is a uh, kind of a renowned atheist, very, very famous author, here's what he says. He says, my concern with religion is that it allows us by the millions to believe what only lunatics and idiots can believe on their own. And so kind of a popular quote, Very kind this kind of solidifies and sort of personifies a pretty typical view that a lot of people have about Christians and about religion, but you see what the underlying assumption is. The underlying assumption is that if you're gonna be a person of faith, that that is incompatible with being a thinking person, that you can't be a real thinking person and be a person of faith at the same time. And uh, that again, that just is kind of a popular view that we see today in our society. Or how about this? I think one of the most um, interesting social commentaries I've seen recently, is actually uh, Taylor Swift, you know, she came up with that song, uh, Calm Down, if you guys have heard that. But the music video that accompanies that song is, quite honestly, one of the most provocative social and political commentaries. And in it, I don't know if if you've seen the video, it basically is advocating for the LGBTQ community. But within that video, what's interesting to me is that there's a depiction of a group of Christians and I don't know if you saw kind of the stereotypical picture of Christians in that music video. Here's a screenshot, though. And so the Christians are the, the protesters. And you can see in this picture that Christians are kind of painted as sort of these backwoods, kind of, um, you know, back-in-time back sort of dim-witted people who can't spell. So, you know, sign, homosexuality is a sin. You know, get a bar more ants, And... And this is like the picture of how the video paints the portrait of Christians. Here's another picture from the same video screenshot. So the site says Adam and Eve, not Adam Adam and Steve. And this group of people who are protesting this community of people. Now, what's interesting about this music video is this won the VMA Video of the Year Award. And that is a People's Choice Award. And so I think what that's doing is it's validating and solidifying more and more that this is the consensus view of how many people view Christians today. It's just interesting. You know, it's fascinating. That guy right there, he looks kind of familiar to me. Okay, kind of reminds me a little bit of our friend Cletus from earlier. But that's, that's, that's a different story. But yeah, so I think what I'm trying to show you is that I think the circumstance that Peter is writing to in the first century is he sees a group of Christ followers who are living in a world that is increasingly becoming more hostile and misunderstanding of the message of Christ. And it's a group of people who are trying to figure out what does it look like to live out our faith in this society? And so the book book of 1 Peter really serves as a handbook. It serves as a handbook of how how does a follower of Christ live out their faith when they're living in exile? I think it's really strong because I feel like today, more and more, that is becoming a need for us to look at. There's a lot that the book of 1 Peter is gonna have to say. And what is Peter gonna say? Well, I think what he's gonna tell us is this, is he's gonna say that just like the Israelites in Babylonian exile, that there are going to be, for Christ followers today, there's going to be three wrong ways that we're gonna be tempted to respond. And there's going to be one right way that's very counterintuitive, but is the the way that God wants us to respond. And what are those? Well, what Peter's gonna say is he's gonna say that followers of Jesus, when they find themselves in this situation, are gonna be tempted first to possibly assimilate. To assimilate, And what does that mean? To blend in. It is to look like, act like, think like, and contain the same values of the society that you live in. So if you can't beat them, join them. And what that means is that Christians need to acquiesce on core beliefs and doctrine, that the, the things that are central to their faith that they need to fold on so that they can look like the culture that they live in. And Peter's gonna say, don't do that. Peter's gonna say, don't assimilate, don't, don't give in your spiritual identity to simply look like the rest of the world around you. The second temptation is for some, just gonna say, well, let's retaliate, that we should fight back. Don't blend in, fight back. And so if they come at, if they, if, you know, someone comes at you with misunderstanding and with hostility towards your belief system, then you retaliate and you reciprocate with equal amount of hostility. If they blast you on social media, you blast them on social media. And if they speak to you in a way that is disrespectful, you speak back in the same tone. Equal and opposite force, we should fight back. And here's what Peter's gonna say. Don't do that either. Don't assimilate, don't retaliate, he's gonna say. He's gonna say, if you do that, it might cost the reputation of Jesus Christ. So don't do that. And the third option is, well, then we should just isolate. We should just stay out. That if we're followers of Jesus, we should just come over here, stiff arm culture in society, and insulate and isolate, and create a little Christian subculture bubble where we just hang out with each other and we just listen to music that we write and we just eat fruit snacks called the fruit of the spirit, right? Which by the way, that is real. That's a real thing. A friend of mine ordered the fruit of the spirit fruit snacks on Amazon and I was like, you got to be kidding me. And they're delicious. I will say that, but (laughs) it's a real thing, right? So what do do followers of Jesus do? Assimilate, retaliate, or isolate? And Peter's going to say, no, 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 none of it, none of it. And so how are followers of Jesus to live? And he's going to say that the fourth option is that followers of Jesus need to illuminate, need to illuminate. Not blend in, not fight back, not stay out, but stand out. Not isolate, but man, saturate. Get in there, be amongst, be with, but don't assimilate, don't assimilate. Look different, but not different in a way of retaliation but in, in a way of illumination, that you're to live in, Christians are to live in such a way that in the world that they're living in, that they illuminate the love, they illuminate the hope, they illuminate the character of Christ in every situation and every relationship that they're in. It's interesting, I was thinking about um, this series, I've Been thinking about it for the past couple of months, studying the book of First Peter. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think of a, of a highlighter. So, you know, highlighters are pretty fascinating if you think about them. I don't know if there's anything else quite like them uh, for their purpose. There's nothing else that's quite like them. So a highlighter, in some ways, is kind of like a marker, but it's very different in a lot of ways. So, you know, markers and highlighters, they're similar. They both have ink. They both are writing utensils. They both are often, you know, made by and distributed by the same company. That happens. However, they serve very different purposes, And so a marker kind of exists. I guess you could think about it this way. It kind of exists to draw attention to itself. That's why a marker exists. You write something, you draw something with a marker, you're intended to look at it. That's what you're intended to do. But a highlighter is so different because a highlighter is designed that its purpose is not simply to draw attention to itself. Its purpose is to draw its attention to itself so that you can look through it to see what's behind it. I guess you could put it this way. A highlighter exists to glorify something, that's why it exists. Not simply that it would draw your attention to it, but that by drawing your attention to it, you would see through it and you would be able to see something behind it. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought this is exactly what Peter is saying in the book of First Peter. He's saying that Christians, Christians as we leave our mark on the world, don't do so as markers, but we do so as highlighters that Christians, the way that Christians should live is we should look distinctively different from the rest of the words on the page, that we should look distinctively different than everybody else in society, but in such a way that it causes people not to look at us, but to look through us and to see the God that we put our hope in and that God is glorified and he is highlighted in and through our lives. And here's what Peter's gonna say. He's gonna say every situation of the life of a Christian, every relationship whether it be your marriage or your work relationships or whether it be how you interact interact with the government and politics or whether it be your suffering and the trials that you're facing he's going to say all of those are unique opportunities for followers of Jesus to glorify God for God to be seen through them and for God to be known to the world around them so here's what i'm thinking my guess is there might be some of you in this room today and you might be thinking to yourself, you know, this is all really interesting. It's a fascinating talk. You know, we talked about the first century and first Peter and Galilee and it's fine. It's neat. It's interesting. But honestly, man, what does any of this have to do with me? And some of you are thinking to yourself, because I, I, I'm leaving this place and I'm going back home and I'm just trying to figure out how to stay married. That's where I'm at in my life right now. And so... It's all neat and interesting, this first Peter, first century stuff. But what does that actually have to do with me? Some of you might be in here and you might be thinking, you know, it's interest, you know, interesting, you know, you know, modern day Turkey and Peter's in Rome and he got martyred. But honestly, man, I'm going through like the hardest time I ever have in my life right now. And so what does any of this have to do with me? And here's what I, here's what I want you to hear me say. I think first Peter is so much more relevant than you might know. And so for example, if you're a person who is in a challenging marriage right now, and so maybe you are a follower of Christ and right now you're not trying to figure out how to make your marriage thrive, you're trying to figure out how to survive. How do we stay married? How do we glorify God and honor God in a relationship that we just, we keep wondering, are we even gonna make it? Can I tell you, 1 Peter is going to speak to you because Peter has something to say about that and about what the purpose of your marriage is. Some of you are in marriages right now where you follow Jesus, but your spouse doesn't. And you're like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live in this? Peter is going to tell you. He's gonna say, listen, you can honor God and you can glorify him, and he's gonna tell you how to do that. Some of you right now are single, and you're just trying to figure out how do I honor God in my singleness? How do I do that? How do I use this unique opportunity in my life in such a way that I don't waste it, but I can leverage it? I'm telling you, Peter has an insight into that. Some of you right now are experiencing work frustrations. You are trying to figure out how to not kill a coworker. And you're like, seriously, I, I wanna love them because God wants me to, but they are impossible to love. If you knew them, if you knew how challenging they are, and I'm just trying to figure out how to keep my sanity at work. For some of you right now, you are facing a work situation where you feel like you are being treated unjustly, where, where maybe, you know, your boss, you feel like there's, there's something there and you're not getting what you deserve. Maybe for some of you, you're in the midst of a business deal right now that has gone bad, and you feel like you are getting the short end of a stick, and you're like, do I take it to court? Do I not? What am I supposed to do? I'm telling you, Peter is going to speak to you. He's gonna talk about how do you glorify God even in situations like that. Some of you right now are in a situation where you feel misunderstood because of your faith. Some of you are facing some of the most severe trials of your life. For some of you right now, you're experiencing loss. Maybe it's a diagnosis and, and it's uncertain. And you're like, I'm trying to figure out how to hold on to my faith right now. I'm telling you, Peter's gonna speak into these situations. Some of you are students right now. And maybe at your high school, you're at your university, or even at your workplace, and you're trying to live for God, but it seems like every time you try to love somebody in the name of Christ, it just gets met with misunderstanding and hostility. What are you supposed to do about that? Peter's gonna tell us. He's gonna show us. Here's how you glorify God, even in that circumstance. And if you're a person who's trying to find answers about Christianity, and maybe you're investigating Jesus, and you're like, what is the Christian hope? I just wanna tell you, if you're anyone on this screen, First Peter is for you. This book is gonna speak to every one of those circumstances and I believe it's gonna add immense clarity. So here's what I believe. I believe for those of us who follow Jesus, the quicker we can come to the realization that every circumstance in our life, no matter what it is, no matter what you're facing, is a unique opportunity for you to glorify God. The quicker you can realize that, the, more, the less confusing and the less frustrating life becomes and the more purpose you see in whatever it is that God has you in right now. And so what does that look like? Well, that's what we're gonna be talking about as we journey through this series together. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you so much that you have went to such great lengths to lovingly preserve for us this letter that's almost 2000 years old I think that, that that in itself is a testimony of how much you care about us, that, uh, that what you spoke through Peter to the, to the church in the first century is something that we have in front of us to help us today. So God, I pray that as we enter into this series, that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, and open our expectations, that we'd want to hear from you, that we'd want to live in light of what you say, and that we'd be differently as a result of it. Father, we know that there's a lot of situations and circumstances that are represented in this room. And uh, Father, we need your wisdom. We need your strength. We need your help. I pray that, uh, that you would meet us through the book of 1 Peter. I pray that you would challenge us and I pray that you'd change us. And so Father, we're excited about going through this for the next eight weeks together. We ask you that you would just speak in powerful ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name.